Gonzaga will get their first huge test of the season on Monday afternoon against the Purdue Boilermakers. What do they need to do to secure a victory? You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, y'all? Welcome into the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag athletics. Today's episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by FanDuel. Right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. So visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. All right, folks, we got a huge, huge matchup Monday afternoon. Gonzaga versus Purdue. Fantastic game in the Maui Invitational. We're going to preview Purdue, talk more about who they are. For those of you who listen to Friday's show, we had a great conversation with Connor Hope of Heat Check College Basketball. Talk to him all about this matchup. We're going to talk more about the specifics of Purdue, how they have looked this season. We'll also talk about my five keys to victory. These are the five things I think Gonzaga needs to do in order to come out of that game with a W. We're going to close out the show with a handful of mailbag questions. We weren't able to get to all of them, although many of the questions were about how to beat Purdue. So I'm thinking we got a lot of them answered in this question or in this first couple of segments already. So let's start. Gonzaga versus Purdue. It is Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific time. The game will be on ESPN2. And for those who are hoping to just tune in at 2 p.m., maybe cut out of work a little, cut out of work a little bit early, you might want to try to even check out earlier if you can, because the first game of that bracket is Tennessee versus Syracuse. That game is taking place at 11:30 a.m. Also on ESPN2. Also, of course, Pacific time for that game. Whoever wins the Tennessee-Syracuse game will play the winner of the Gonzaga-Purdue game. Vice versa, loser will play the loser. So that is an, a, a good game to watch for anybody who is able to do so. Obviously, Monday, mid, middle of the week games on, on in the afternoons are always difficult. But uh, to be able to watch the, the pair of these games will give Gonzaga fans a great opportunity to, of course, see the Zags against a fantastic Purdue squad and also get a full 40-minute look at whomever Gonzaga is going to play on Tuesday, if Gonzaga loses to Purdue, they will play at 11.30 a.m. on Tuesday. If they beat Purdue, they will play at 5 p.m. on Tuesday. Again, all those times Pacific time. This game is also a rematch of a Gonzaga-Purdue game that took place last year in the Phil Knight Invitational, a game that Gonzaga fans aren't necessarily going to want to think too much about. That game happened before Purdue was the consensus number one team in the country, uh, they kind of that was really their breaking point when they kind of took off as a program. Uh, so it looked a lot worse for Gonzaga at the time when they lost by about 20 points in that game. But this is a very new look Gonzaga team, whereas for Purdue, they kind of look the same. Purdue is, of course, looking to avenge their loss in the uh, in the uh, sweet six in the sweet sixteen against a sixteen seed in the first round of the NCAA tournament last year. They were a number one seed. They're the second ever number one seed to lose to a sixteen seed in Fairleigh Dickinson. The last team to do that was Virginia. They went ahead and won the national championship the next year. Purdue is certainly a contender for that national championship as well. Three and zero so far on the season. They played Sanford in their first game, beat them by fifty three points. Morehead State. In their second game, beat them by 30, and then beat Xavier, Sean Miller's squad by 12 in their third game. Right now, Ken Palm has them second in the country. First, an adjusted offense, 13th 
in adjusted defense tempo they are down at 253rd we'll talk a lot more about that tempo and what that might mean for Gonzaga a little later in the show but while this is a new look Gonzaga team in terms of no Drew Timmy no Julian Strother pretty much a rebuilt guard room outside of Nolan Hickman it's pretty much the same Purdue team and as they were last year as they are this year they are anchored by Zach Eadie Zach Eadie, the National Player of the Year last year, returning to college basketball, something we've seen very rarely in the history of college basketball, but much more often frequently in part because players who dominate college basketball tend to be the type of players that aren't necessarily dominating in the NBA, the Drew Timmies of the world, the Oscar Sheboys of the world. He was a returnee National Player of the Year. Of course, Zach Eadie, Armando Baycott, Hunter Dickinson. There's a handful of players who kind of fit this mold. Zach Eady being kind of the, the the kingpin of that group right now as a seven foot four center, a very good touch around the rim, improving free throw shooter, great defensive player for his size. Uh, currently in the three games so far for Purdue, he's averaging just under 21 points, 10 boards, 3.7 blocks, two assists. He's played about 26 minutes per game. I'm curious how much that number might bump up. Again, you know, you look at Gonzaga's numbers and Graham Ike hasn't played that many minutes and, and some of those guys haven't played all that much because they've only played a few games. And against Eastern Oregon, Gonzaga's starters played very little. When Purdue beat the absolute tar out of Samford in their first game, I suspect that that kind of maybe changed the numbers predictions. I think Edie's going to end up playing closer to 30, maybe 32 minutes uh, in this contest. But that's something I'm very curious about coming in is how much Purdue rides Zach Edie in this contest. But this team is not just Zach Eady. It's not. It wasn't last year. It's definitely not this year. Young guards from last year's roster, they were a bunch of freshman guards, and that was kind of what was their downfall a little bit at the end of the year was just not having any experience in the backcourt. Well, all those guys are back. And I think that that's really valuable for continuity's sake, for Coach Matt Painter to be able to experiment and try new things, knowing that he's got the same personnel. They're familiar with each other, familiar with each other's games. Uh, and, and these guys are just better. Players get better from freshman year to sophomore year. That is incredibly common. It is something that you Gonzaga fans are relying on with certain players and have always relied on with certain players. And, and Purdue, same situation. And we're seeing it already with some of their young guards. Braden Smith, so far on the year, 11.7 points, 8.3 assists, 6 rebounds, and 1.3 steals. Fletcher Lawyers averaging 8.3 points, 3 boards, 1.7 assists, and 1 steal as well. And then they got Miles Colvin coming back. He's only playing 13 minutes per game, but he's averaging about 8 points. And shot is so far has shot 7 of 10 from 3, a cool 70% from beyond the arc. Purdue also added Lance Jones. Transfer from Southern Illinois again. For those of you who listen to Friday's show, Connor talked a lot about Lance Jones and the mismatch, the matchup issues that he could potentially cause for Gonzaga, and particularly the strain he might put on freshman Dusty Stromer. Uh, Lance Jones averaging 9.7 points, 3.7 assists, 2.7 boards, and 1.7 steals so far for the Boilermakers. As a team, Purdue is shooting 46.3% from three. They're making about 10 per game on about 22 attempts per game. Again, Competition level outside of Xavier hasn't been great, but for those who think that, oh, we just let Edie cook and stop the guards, I understand that thought process, and we will certainly talk more about the best ways to beat this team, but the idea that Purdue's guards are incapable of beating a team like Gonzaga is false. Purdue's guards are very good. They are better this year than they were last year. They are a very good outside shooting team. If Gonzaga packs the paint and really tries to stop Zach Edie, and let's Purdue's guard shoot, 
there may be some viability to that strategy. I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily. I'm just saying the assumption that oh, Purdue's guards won't be able to to do that is not true. Purdue's guards are very capable of that. And if you look at Purdue's best games last year, including against Gonzaga, I think they made 12 threes last year against the Zags. They made four threes in that Fairleigh Dickinson game. That They live and die by that outside shot. Zach Eady is incredibly critical to this team, unbelievably so. But they also really rely on that outside shooting. That's going to make this a really interesting matchup. And that's what I want to talk about going forward is what does Mark Few need to do? Because this team looks a lot different than last year's team. They can do a lot of different things. What does that look like? How does that result in Gonzaga advancing into the second round of the Maui Invitational? We're going to discuss that after I tell you about our new sponsor, Listening.com. College students, listen up. There's this incredible new app called Listening.com, which can take any academic paper, PDF, class material, any of that, and turn it into an audiobook. It can read math equations, technical words, and complicated documents. It also knows how to skip all the citations, the footnotes, and references, lets you jump straight to the chapter or section that you want to listen to. It even has a one-click note-taking button where it automatically puts the last 10 seconds into a notepad so you don't have to type notes while you're listening. Best of all, you usually get the first two weeks of listening.com free, but if you use the link listening.com slash locked on, you'll be able to get your first three weeks for free. I can tell you right now, I would have loved to have this when I was a college student. So go ahead and give it a try. Get an extra free week when you go to listening.com slash locked on. Listening.com, help make your learning more efficient. Folks, I want to thank all of you for making Locked On Zags your first listen or your first watch of the day. Shout out to those everyday listeners. Shout out to those of you who are listening to the show or watching the show on YouTube. And of course, big shout out to those of you on our Discord channel. If you want to get involved in the Discord channel, you can click the link in the show notes. We're previewing this game, talking about everything going on in the WCC, all things college basketball 24-7 in that channel. Check it out. Right now, though, what I want to do is do my five keys to victory. For those of you who have listened to the show the last couple of weeks, you know that we try to do a either five keys to victory or five things I'll be watching for, depending on the opponent. We did not do five keys to victory against Eastern Oregon because the result of that game was not really in question. It was more of like, what are things we're hoping to see from Luka Krajinovic and from some of the bench guys? This game, we're talking keys to victory. We are specifically talking about what Gonzaga needs to do to leave the first game of the Maui Invitational with a W. Number one, watching the Purdue-Xavier game, it is clear that Purdue and Zach Eady in particular go under on screens. That makes sense. Zach Eady's not going to chase guards around the perimeter. Purdue doesn't really hedge screens the way that Gonzaga historically has. So what you'll see is when a screen is set by Graham E.K. or Braden Huff or whichever of Gonzaga's bigs, E.D. is going to play back off of the screen underneath it to prevent Nemhard or Hickman or whoever from getting a free drive to the basket. What that creates is an opening for an open three-point shot. Gonzaga needs to punish Purdue for going under on screens. They need to, need to, need to. This is a huge key in this game. If they can hit enough threes off of that pick and roll to either force Purdue to change their defensive strategy, whether they then attempt to hedge the screens, whether they attempt to go over the screens, which I think is unlikely, whether they do a personnel change, I'm not sure Gonzaga is going to be able to shoot Zach Eady off the floor necessarily just because of how valuable Eady is on both ends of the floor for, for Purdue, but they need to punish him for that. 
if Edie can continue to go under screens and Nemhard and Hickman either aren't taking those threes or aren't knocking those threes down, it's going to allow Purdue to play the, the type of defense they want to play. It's going to allow Edie to sag off and not have to work as hard defensively and also allow him to be closer to the rim, preventing players like Dusty Stromer from cutting to the basket, presenting, preventing other opportunities for Gonzaga to score in ways that they need to be able to do if they want to win this game. Number two, another offensive one. This is one that's been very commonly discussed on the Discord channel as well as on Friday's episode with Connor Hope. Zags need to get out in transition. Last year's team wasn't built to get out in transition. It was early in the year when these two teams played and Gonzaga hadn't really figured out that that was not an area of strength for that team. This year's team it is. Drew Timmy's not on the floor anymore. Nolan Hickman's not running the point guard anymore. Ryan Nemphard is. Ryan Nemphard excels at getting out in transition. He's one of the quickest guards Gonzaga has ever had. He's in that Ryan Woolridge, Dimitri Goodson conversation of quick, 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 get it and go. The personnel for Gonzaga, Anton Watson is great at getting out in transition. Dusty Stromer is going to be, is going to excel in that area without a doubt. I think Gonzaga's bigs will see how Graham E.K. Bradenhuff, those guys do getting out in transition, but by and large, I think this team is more equipped to be a run-and-gun, score-in-transition type offense. And I think they're going to need it if they want to beat Purdue. Purdue's a good half-court defensive team, a, a great half-court defensive team. Zach Eady, when he's in position, makes it really hard to score around the rim. They're going to force Gonzaga to take a lot of jump shots, a lot of long twos, a lot of inefficient shots. The best way to beat Purdue is to score a lot of points out in transition. If Gonzaga can get those long rebounds, get out in transition, even score off made baskets potentially if they have the opportunity to do so, I think that is critical. And I think Gonzaga has better personnel to do that. Wear this team out. Get into their depth. This is not a super deep team. If there is a criticism of Purdue, it is that we haven't seen a ton from their bench depth so far. I think they have talented players on their bench, but let's make them prove it. This is a great way to do so in this game. Number three for Gonzaga, defend the perimeter. This is probably going to be a key for every single game that we talk about with Gonzaga, but Purdue in particular is a team that could really kill us from beyond the arc. Gonzaga's defense needs to be on point, and it's tough. It's tough to focus on defending the perimeter when you have a seven foot four, 22 point per game scorer looming on the block. It's really hard to focus on defending the perimeter. But like I said, Purdue shooting 46% from three on the year. They're making about 10 a game. If Gonzaga lets Purdue make 10 to 12 threes in this game, I'm not, Zach Eady's line may not even matter. It may not matter how he does because if Purdue can get that those kind of looks, They can get open looks from threes. They can knock them down. That's going to make Gonzaga's ability to stay in this game and ultimately win this game a lot more difficult. Braden Smith, Miles Colvin, and Fletcher Lawyer are a combined 17 of 32 from three this year. That is phenomenal. Obviously, it is a tiny sample size. But again, this is not just a, hey, we shut Edie down and and make the guards beat us type of situation because we got to do more than just that. Otherwise, those guards will beat us. That is what will happen is Gonzaga will lose if they don't do enough to stop those guards. So it's going to be a key, huge key in this game. Number four, force some turnovers. Purdue's averaging about 11.3 turnovers per game. That's pretty good. Granted, again, two of the opponents they've played are small major teams that probably aren't really super capable of forcing a lot of turnovers for a team like Purdue. Xavier's not a great defensive team, so I'm not exactly shocked that Purdue has done a good job of taking care of the basketball, but this is an area that Gonzaga is going to need. Take possessions away from Purdue. 
Anton Watson is one of the best, has some of the best hands in all of college basketball. His ability to strip the basketball, get steals, get out and transition that way, vital. This is a huge test for Dusty Stromer as well. By all accounts, Dusty Stromer has the ability to be a very, very good college basketball defensive player. Is he there yet? Most players are not great defenders by their third college basketball game. This is Dusty's first real big test. How does he look defensively? Can he get some strips? Can he frustrate Purdue's guards, um, put them in positions where they have to get rid of the basketball a little bit earlier? Basically, forcing turnovers is a part of this, but really the main goal here is don't let Purdue comfortably get into their offense where they can get the ball to Zach Eadie. There should be very few possessions where Purdue can walk the ball up the floor, set up in their offense, find a way to get Zach Eadie the basketball on the block. If they're able to do that routinely, it's going to be really hard to win this basketball game for the Zags. And number five, the last key here, start fast. The Zags have a history, not just this season, there's only been a couple of games this year, but they have a history of starting games kind of slow. For those of you who have watched most, if not all, Gonzaga basketball games, you're incredibly familiar with this. The amount of times Gonzaga goes into the under 16 or under 12 media timeout, letting some team hang around or even have a lead early in the game. I mean, it happened with Yale not that long ago. Yale's a good squad, but the amount of times you'll see somebody on Twitter being like, ooh, Gonzaga with the eyeballs emoji because they're losing a game to a team that they're ultimately going to end up beating by 26 points, it happens routinely. If you start slow against Purdue, your odds of coming back in that game are just a lot more difficult. I would love for Matt Painter to have to call a timeout before the first media timeout or before the, the second media timeout. If Matt Painter, the Purdue coach, has to call a timeout because Gonzaga's on a big run, because they've gotten three turnovers in a row, because they've scored in transition, and the Purdue is down six, down eight, down 12, whatever, that's fantastic. Gonzaga's not going to win this game in the first four minutes. Purdue will bounce back if that happens. I promise you, Purdue is, is good enough to keep this thing close throughout. But getting out to a fast start, jumping out to an early lead is a huge confidence booster for this roster. It, it sends a message to Purdue that this team, yeah, you may have beat us last year and we may not have had, we may not have our all-time leading score, but this, this roster is fully capable of beating you. Sending that message, building that confidence early in the game is vital for Gonzaga to be able to pull off this victory and play uh, at 5 p.m. on Tuesday in the winner's bracket. All right, we're going to close out today's show. That's enough on Purdue. We'll, of course, recap the Purdue game, preview Gonzaga's following opponent uh, after the game on Monday. So we're going to get to all of that. But for now, I want to get to some mailbag questions. It is Monday. After all, you all asked some great questions. We didn't quite get to all of them, but we got to a few of them here to close out the show. Before we get to that, though, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, FanDuel. Score early and often this college basketball season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 if your team wins. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time than right now to get in on the action. The app is insanely easy to use. There is a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over-unders, Moneyline, and more. And right now, the Zags currently have 801 odds to make the final four. Those odds are going to go up. If Gonzaga beats Purdue, so if you want to get in on the action right now, $25 bet nets you 200 bucks if the Zags find themselves in the final four. So visit FanDuel.com right now and go to FanDuel.com slash locked on, kicking off the college basketball season. FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. All right, folks, closing out today's show with four Mailbag Monday questions. Those of you who want to get involved in Mailbag Monday, you can 
Reach out to me on Twitter at AndyPattonCBB. The best way to do so, however, is to reach out on our Discord channel. Again, there's a link in the show notes. You click that. We have a channel called Mailbag Questions. You submit them there. They go right to me. Very, very easy process to get those answered here on the show. Again, didn't get to all of them this week, especially when Gonzaga plays Monday games. It's a little bit trickier, but we're going to try to get to all of these eventually. This first question here comes from Malaskis on Discord, who says, would you rather have the Zags beat Purdue and lose to Tennessee and Marquette or lose to Purdue and beat Syracuse and UCLA? Which would be better for the team's tournament resume? If those are the two situations that were given, I'd much rather beat Purdue. Yes, going one and two feels worse than going two and one. But a win over Purdue and a loss to a top 10 Tennessee team, frankly, probably top five when all is said and done, and then a loss to a top five Marquette team, that is all better than the alternative, which is Gonzaga losing to the only ranked team they play in Purdue and then beating an unranked UCLA team and an unranked Syracuse team. Don't get me wrong. Both of those are quality wins. I think there's a chance UCLA ultimately ends up ranked at some point this season. They are a young team. They have a lot of international players who haven't quite found their spot. They actually just got one of their forwards cleared to play today as I'm recording this on Sunday evening. So to me, UCLA is a great win. Syracuse is a quality win. But I would rather beat Purdue, which is a which is a better win than both of those, and lose to top 10 teams. Because, yes, it still hurts the resume to have two losses on it. But it doesn't hurt as much to lose to really, really good teams. And beyond that, it just makes Gonzaga better. Playing Purdue, Tennessee, and Marquette in a three-day period will make Gonzaga better. One and two or not, it will make them better. Tennessee is one of the best defensive teams in the entire country. Purdue, or excuse me, Marquette is one of the best offensive teams in the entire country. Purdue is great at both. Those are really good opponents for Gonzaga to play. If those are the three games Gonzaga plays, I'm completely content knowing how much better this program, this team, this unit is going to be heading into March because of the experiences they gained against those three teams, even if it resulted in one less win than the alternative. Next question here comes from Kevin via a Twitter DM. Kevin says, if Hunter Salas had stayed at Gonzaga, would he have started on this team? If so, how would the lineup be different? You'd definitely be starting right now with Steel Venters out. I'm not sure if he would have been projected to start uh, until the Venters injury happened, but I, I, I would be shocked if Mark Few would start Dusty Stromer over Hunter Salas on this roster. But to be honest, regarding Hunter Salas, I don't think this will be the last time I answer questions about him. For anybody who watched the Wake Forest LSU game on Sunday, he looked unbelievable in that game. I mean, absolutely fantastic. He just wasn't a fit at Gonzaga. A lot of people have kind of taken one poll or the other. Extremism is just particularly common in the social media area era. So you have a lot of Salas is good. So Mark Few was wrong or Few was right because Salas is playing on a worse team. It's not, it's not an extreme in either way. To me, Salas didn't fit this team and this roster and this offensive style as well as he fits at Wake Forest. It's literally that simple. To me, it's not more complicated than that. He made a choice to go somewhere that better fit what he wanted to do offensively and helps see Forbes and Wake Forest be better. Doesn't mean that Mark Few was wrong necessarily. You also, for those of you who listened to my show last year, you know that I criticized Mark Few for how often he played Hunter Salas. So I'm not saying that Mark Few was absolutely not wrong. I'm just saying that Salas's performance at Wake Forest to me doesn't necessarily indicate uh, rightness or wrongness for Coach Few in this in this situation because it's just different. It's just a different stylistic thing. 
Hunter Salas is great. He's playing great at Wake Forest. He would probably start on this team. It would allow Dusty Strummer to be in a more comfortable role coming off the bench. I would give Gonzaga more depth. I would hurt their their spacing on the floor a little bit more. Uh, but again, Salas just wasn't a great fit in Spokane, and I'm happy to see him succeeding somewhere else. Next question comes from Pete underscore 22909 on Discord, who says, is there any scenario where we will see Braden Huff and Graham E.K. on the court at the same time? It seems that given Braden's ability to shoot from distance would allow him to play as a stretch four. It also seems like that lineup would be better for rebounding and rim protection. What would be the downside? I think E.K. and Huff would probably get crushed in pick and roll actions. I think that's part of the downside there. Now, I, I do think Ben Gregg struggles in pick and roll actions as well. Anton Watson's probably the best. Graham E.K. has looked solid in those pick and roll actions, but I, I find a, a lineup with Huff and E.K., they're the least mobile of Gonzaga's bigs at, between Watson, Greg, and the two of them. It prevents Gonzaga from getting out in transition, which I think with Ryan Nempard and Nolan Hickman, the Zags really want to get out in transition. And having, like, Drew Timmy, for all of his fantastic things, one of the faults was that Gonzaga struggled to get out in transition last year. If you run EK and Huff at the same time, I think you're really limiting Gonzaga's ability to get out in transition. Beyond that, Braden Huff is really good when he can be the low-post player. I mean, yes, Huff's a great three-point shooter. He's looked phenomenal as an outside shooter. But most of Braden Huff's dominance in this this season, in the regular season, in the exhibition season at Craziness, has been as a low-post back-to-the-basket scorer. If you have him and EK on the floor at the same time, he can't do that. While I think he's capable of playing away from the basket, you're preventing him from doing what he's best at. And I don't know why you would do that. Bring Braden Huff off the bench. Have him play when EK's not playing allow him to be the best version of Braden Huff, which is a low post scorer who can also step out and stretch the floor. To answer the question overall, will they play together? I, I imagine at some point, yes. I don't think they're going to never play a single minute together, but I, I, I think there's a very obvious reason why it's not happening. And I think that should continue to be the case for the Zags going forward. Final question of the show. Another one from Kevin via Twitter DM. He says, what would DeMontis Sabonis need to do over the next five to 10 years to be considered for the NBA Hall of Fame? So I don't think DeMontis Sabonis is particularly close right now. And to be honest, I don't study the NBA or the National Basketball Hall of Fame uh, all that often. They've made some odd decisions. The Basketball Hall of Fame is a tricky one to kind of pin down and figure out. Uh, but Sabonis right now has had a very, very great career, but it doesn't strike me as Hall of Fame worthy yet. He has only led the league in one category one time, and that was rebounds. I think last year or two years ago, he led the NBA in rebounds. Never led the team, in, never led the NBA in scoring in any other category in field goal percentage, whatever it may be. Uh, he has three all-star games, which is great. He has one all-NBA nod, and it was a third team. So you're looking at his right now, who he is in his era. He has never been considered the best player of his era, never been really considered a top five player, top 10 player of his era. And that shouldn't necessarily be the baseline for getting into the Hall of Fame, but you need to be pretty close to that conversation. And I guess to answer the question, Sabotas would need to do a lot. He would need to do a lot to be an NBA Hall of Famer. I don't think it's impossible. I do think it probably requires him to win a ring. The number of players who make the Hall of Fame who have, who don't lead their team to a uh, championship is are, are elite tier players, are the Barclays, the Stocktons, the Malones, those types of players. I don't think Sabonis is at that level. He probably needs to make four to five more All-Star games, which frankly is possible. I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. A couple more All-NBA nods would be great if he could get at least one All-NBA first team, but in an era where he plays with Nikola Jokic and Giannis Antetokounmpo and Joel Embiid and everybody else that, that plays 
uh, that kind of four or five hybrid position, I just have a hard time seeing Sabonis get a lot of all NBA first team nods, if any, quite honestly. And so I think if he's like, uh, maybe he gets a second team nod, a couple more third team nods, four or five more all-star games, all of that, plus continually putting up 19 and 12 with five or six assists, that's going to get him some really nice accolades. It's going to get him some really nice career stats. But unless he drags the Kings to an NBA Finals, I'm not sure I see it. If he continues to struggle in the playoffs, continues to get exposed defensively in the playoffs, which is frankly what happened last year, I don't think there's much of a path here. And that's not to disrespect him in any way, shape, or form. I'm just not quite sure that that's the level he's at right now. That's going to wrap us up for today here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Thank you so much, folks, for making the show your first listen or your first watch of the day. Shout out to those everyday listeners checking out the show on YouTube. We'll be back on Monday afternoon, shortly after Gonzaga's game against Purdue. We'll have a new episode breaking down that game, previewing Gonzaga's next matchup against either Tennessee or Syracuse. So stick with us here as we get into Feast Week and the most exciting non-March week of the college basketball season. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, as always, go Zags.